Stories of Communism 1, Famine in Ukraine. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Since this is the first episode, we want to start with a few notes on what exactly we're trying to do in this podcast. It's been about a century since the Russian Revolution introduced the world to real-life communism, one of the most murderous totalitarian political systems ever created by humanity. Sadly, the Western world is filled with people almost totally unaware of the tens of millions of deaths and the immeasurable levels of suffering that have resulted from this system, and a century later it's still going strong. We have active communists protesting in the streets, teenagers wearing Che Guevara t-shirts, and political leaders lacking an iota of shame about having supported the wrong side in the Cold War. And of course, continuing communist governments, or so-called socialist governments different in name only, throughout the world. We think a large part of the reason for this ignorance about the horrors of communism is the lack of popular narratives or stories in the average person's consciousness. While certain other 20th century human tragedies have resulted in endless coverage on movies and television, Hollywood has been criminally negligent in covering communism. And this isn't due to lack of source material. There's been a constant stream of excellent memoirs, novels, and short stories coming out of the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, Red China, and other affected areas. When you have a mental vision of a real person suffering through real experiences, it's just inherently a lot more vivid than dry statistics you may have been formally taught. Thus we arrive at the reason for this podcast. We're going to look at communism not from the perspective of global statistics, but through the eyes of those who lived in the system. We'll review and discuss stories, novels, and memoirs that reveal what it was like to really live in communist countries and what it's still like for the many unfortunate prisoners in its remaining outposts. This isn't meant to be an audiobook. These short podcasts won't replace the need to read the source materials, but we're hoping it will pique your interest and whet your curiosity for more details about what it's really been like to live under this system. And perhaps it'll open your eyes to the still-present danger that remains if we ignore this bloody phase of history. You've probably read newspaper articles about the current mass starvation happening in Venezuela. Shortages of food and other necessities have actually been a near-universal feature of societies taken over by socialist and communist ideas. So today we're going to talk about the horrific 1930s famine in the Ukraine, known as the Holodomor, as described by Soviet journalist and novelist Vasily Grossman. The text we'll be quoting is from his panoramic novel Forever Flowing, the story of a former gulag prisoner coming to terms with the last three decades of history after Stalin's death. We're using Thomas Whitney's 1973 translation. In some sense, this novel might be said to contain secondhand testimony, as we're looking at a story told through the voice of one of the characters from a point of view that doesn't quite match the author's. However, since Grossman was an active journalist during the pre-World War II Soviet era, we can be pretty confident that most of the characters and plot lines in the novel are based on his actual experiences and conversations with his fellow citizens. The novel contains many short vignettes about life in the Soviet Union under Stalin. We'll be focusing today on just one chapter, chapter 14, in which the main character, Ivan Grigorievich, falls in love with the Ukrainian woman, and she feels the need to confess to him the story of her life. The story centers around the Holodomor and her own minor role in it as a local Communist Party activist. She begins by talking about the campaign to liquidate the Kulaks, the successful peasant farmers. This was always one of the main motivations for communism, looking around, noticing that some people are more successful than others, and deciding that this means the system is fundamentally unfair. Naturally, their success is never attributed to hard work or ability. It can only come from having cheated or exploited their neighbors. The campaign to liquidate the kulaks began at the end of 1929. They began to arrest the heads of families only. 
The arrests were carried out solely by the GPU. Party activists had no part in this at all. All those rounded up in this first stage were shot to a man. The province authorities sent the plan down to the district authorities in the form of the total number of kulaks. And who made up the list? Three people. Dim witted. Unenlightened people determined on their own who was to live and who was to die. Well, that makes it all clear. Anything could happen on this level. There were bribes. Accounts were settled because of jealousy over some woman or because of ancient feuds and quarrels. But the evil done by the honest people was no less than that done by the dishonest ones. These lists were evil in themselves. They were unjust. It's interesting to see that even within the context of their own system, the decisions were seen as arbitrary and unfair. This is a common feature of authoritarian governments. No matter how rational they try to make their strict sets of rules, they have to be implemented by actual human beings with their inherent flaws. When such human beings have absolute power over life and death, even at a local level, no good can result. Anyway, the description continues. The fathers were already in prison, and then, at the beginning of 1930, they began to round up families too. This was more than the GPU could accomplish by itself. All party activists were motivated for the job. They were all people who knew one another well, and knew their victims, but in carrying out the task they became dazed, stupefied. They would threaten people with guns as if they were under a spell, calling small children kulak bastards, screaming bloodsuckers, they looked on so-called kulaks as cattle, swine, loathsome, repulsive. They had no souls. They stunk and exploited the labor of others. These slogans began to have their impact on me too. I was just a young girl, and they kept repeating them at meetings and in special instructions on the radio. They kept showing them at the movies. Writers kept writing them. Stalin himself, too. Kulaks are parasites. They are burning grain. They are killing children. And I, too, began to fall under the spell of all this. And it began to seem as if everything evil had sprung from the Kulaks. If they were destroyed, a happy time would instantly ensue for the peasantry. And there was no pity for them. As we all know, this was not the first time, and would not be the last time, that a country used propaganda to turn the population against some minority. The story goes on to describe the unbelievable suffering endured by the Kulaks after being expelled from their villages. Many were transported to remote frozen areas where no prison had yet been built, and told they would be exposed to the elements until they'd constructed it. But we'll focus more on the fate of the prisoners in future episodes of this podcast. Let's go back to the party activist story. And we thought folks that we were, that there could be no faith worse than that of the Kulaks. How wrong we were. The execution by famine had arrived. By this time, I no longer washed floors, but I was a bookkeeper instead. And as a party activist, I was sent to the Ukraine in order to strengthen a collective farm. In the Ukraine, we were told they had an instinct for private property. And so I arrived there, and the people there were like everyone else. 
After the liquidation of the Kulaks, the amount of land under cultivation dropped very sharply and so did the crop yield. But meanwhile, people continued to report that without the Kulaks, our whole life was flourishing. It was clear that Moscow was basing its hopes on the Ukraine. And the upshot of it all was that most of the subsequent anger was directed against the Ukraine. Of course, the grain deliveries could not be fulfilled. The conclusion reached up top was that the grain had all been concealed, hidden away by kulaks who had not yet been liquidated, the loafers. Here we can see the unintended side effect that universally results from demonizing and punishing the productive. Whatever they were producing, grain in this case, ends up in short supply. Yet out of fear of personal consequences, nobody wants to openly point this out. In this case, the lack of food simply caused further rage against the already dehumanized kulaks, who, as the reasoning went, must still be in control of the Ukrainian farm somehow. The instructions were to take away the entire seed fund. Grain was searched for as if it were no grain but bombs and machine guns. Cellars were dug up, floors were broken through, and vegetable gardens were turned over. They even took baked bread away from one woman, loaded it onto the cart, and hauled it off to the district. Day and night the carts creaked along, laden with the confiscated grain, and dust hung over the earth. And there were no grain elevators to accommodate it, and they simply dumped it out on the earth and set guards around it. By winter, the grain had been soaked by rain and begun to ferment. The Soviet government didn't even have enough canvas to cover it up. Fathers and mothers wanted to save their children and had a tiny bit of grain, and they were told, you hate the country of socialism. You're trying to make the plan fail. You parasites, you pro-kulaks, you rats. They tried to answer, but it was to no avail. I can tell you the story, but stories are words. And what this was about was life, torture, death from starvation. Incidentally, when the grain was taken away, the party activists were told the peasants would be fed from the state grain fund. But it was not true. Not one single kernel of grain was given to the starving. Note here that the party made just enough promises to enable its activists and local officials to rationalize away their cruelty, saying that the peasants would be fed, and it would be someone else's responsibility. Sadly, despite providing the story as a moral cover, the state did not feed the peasants as promised. The narrator goes on to describe the remaining stages before the final death of the village. It was when the snow began to melt that the village was up to its neck and real starvation. No dogs or cats were left. They had been slaughtered. And it was hard to catch them, too. The animals had become afraid of people and their eyes were wild. Faces were swollen, legs were swollen like pillows, water bloated their stomachs. And the peasant children? Have you ever seen the newspaper photographs of the children in the German camps? They were just like that, their heads like heavy balls and thin little necks like storks, and one could see each line of their arms and legs protruding from the skin. One had to be made of stone to hear all that moaning and at the same time eat one's own ration of bread. 
I used to go outdoors with my bread ration and could hear the moaning. I would go farther and then it would seem as if they had fallen silent. And then I would go a little farther and it would begin again. At that point, it was the next village down the line and it seemed as if the whole earth were groaning together with the people on it. This tragic description is from the point of view within a single village, but as we now know, there were many such villages across the Ukraine and neighboring regions. Ultimate estimates range from 2 million to 10 million deaths overall. But even for those in the cities, where most of the confiscated grain that survived ended up, the shortages were life-changing. And that leads to our final quote, another eerie reminder of current Venezuelan news reports describing the party activists' experiences after returning to the city. I went to Kiev. At the time, they had begun to sell unrationed bread at high prices at the commercial stores, as they were called. You should have seen what went on. The lines were half kilometer in length the night before the stores even opened. These lines were of a special kind. I had never seen any like them. People held onto the belts of those ahead and clung for dear life. If one person stumbled, the whole line would shake and quiver as though a wave had passed along it. They were terrified of being unable to keep hold of the person in front, of their hands slipping and losing their place, and the woman began to scream out of fear. Anyway, that's where we'll stop for now. The excerpts we shared are only a small portion of one chapter. If you're curious for more details, we encourage you to read the book yourself. The title is translated in two ways, so you may see it as Forever Flowing or Everything Flows, depending on where you try to buy it. All right, and now we reach the part of the podcast where uh, my co-host Manuel steps out from behind the quotes he's been reading and um, shares some comments of his own on today's topic. Well, it looks like uh, the Soviet Union would have been a tough place for a kulak like me. Uh, they sure would have stumped me down. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think what, what's really interesting about your story, Manuel, is that you know, you have a small sort of landscaping construction company. Um, there's a lot of other companies like it here, but yet you do some unique things that other companies here don't, right? Well, what we try to do is to look for things that are unique and more specialized because we know that when you gain a skill that very few people have, then you're in high demand. Right. You told me how you educated yourself in civil engineering and now you're able to handle some issues related to like landslides and things. Correct. I have made a, a really big effort to try to be the best at what we do. And so any opportunity we have to educate ourselves or to gain more information, we gladly take it. Yeah, so I don't want to change this podcast into an ad for PLI systems. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, I think it's an important point here because someone might look and say, you're so much more successful than other similar companies around here. Why don't we take a cue from Stalin in the 1930s and take away all your assets and distribute them among the other small companies? Um, do you think that would be a good result for Oregon? No, I think that would be a great way to deflate those of us who get up early in the morning and go to sleep late. Yeah, yeah. And I think if we did that, you know, one of the perverse results would be that the unique things you do, things like, you know, being better able to, you know, handle landslide issues and stuff like that, there just wouldn't be anyone doing them in Oregon because no one would have an incentive to put in that extra effort to, to really try to do those things above and beyond the sort of standard company of this type. Well, let's hope we learn something from this story. 
I agree. By the way, since this is a new podcast, we'd also like to hear your feedback and suggestions for the podcast. Please send an email and tell us what you thought. And this concludes your story of communism for today.